Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today, we're going towards a subject I'm not very familiar with, but Alex, who have we got on today? So today we have with us military historian Luciana Harrison, um, and I'm really excited because having done a crap load of stuff on World War I aviation, I've never paid much attention to women um, in the Great War, female aviators in the Great War. Um, so she's going to talk to us about that. Hi, Luciana. Hi. Yeah, so I'm quite excited to learn a bit more about this, considering I don't know much about female aviation in the Great War. But how common are female aviators in the Great War and where did they come from? So um, female aviators in this period are relatively rare. I mean, there were female aviators, but generally you had to be rich and come from privileged backgrounds and or have some kind of celebrity status so then as now um learning to fly wasn't cheap and at the time it wasn't really orthodox for women to to do something that was seen as traditionally male i mean aviation was quite new anyway but it was definitely seen as a sort of male pursuit um so yeah you generally had to be sort of come from a rich background and there were aviators I think in certainly in most of the western world they happen in Britain they happen in France they happen in the states as well I'm sure um but the background is is more key it's it's the fact that they're very privileged they can afford to learn it's not sort of it's not very common basically if that makes sense (laughs) did any of them actually fly operationally in the great war um again Officially, no one did. Um, there were certainly no operational pilots in the women's services at all. Um, there were, certainly one example I can think of is a French woman called Marie Marvin, who was, um, she was an incredible woman um, and was very much a celebrity of her day as well. Um, she was called, in the French press, she was called la fiancée de danger, which is like the fiancée of danger. Because she was um, she was an athlete, she was a journalist, but she was also an aviator as well. She won loads and loads of prizes. She first suggested the development of the air ambulance for the French government in 1901, I think it was. And she was the first woman to fly operationally because she volunteered on a bombing mission um, over, I think it was Berlin. It might have been somewhere in the industrial area of Germany, I can't remember quite exactly where it was but she she was certainly 
I'm not saying that there weren't other women who also flew, but she's the only one that I know of, and she was the first woman to do that. She sounds incredible, actually. She really does. Yeah, she's an amazing woman. Um, yeah, she's. Um, I definitely recommend people to look her up. She's such an amazing woman to read about. We could have used her on down the pub for an argument, I think. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But what um what roles did women actually perform in military aviation at the beginning, and how does this evolve as the conflict goes on? So at the beginning, um, obviously, we didn't have the RAF as we know it today. That wasn't formed until April nineteen eighteen. So at the beginning of the war, we had the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service. Um, of the two, the Royal Naval Air Service is um, the youngest. That only was founded sort of a few months before the war began, um, but they were separate corps. And before the women's services were formed, we had voluntary groups that would um, that would provide people. So um, obviously you had nurses and stuff. A lot of people hear about nurses in World War One, but there was a corps, for example, called um, the Women's Legion, which was founded by, I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was some sort of upper-class women. And they recruited women to be cooks and uh, motor transport drivers, so chauffeurs basically, and I think some of them were laundresses as well. So they provided these sort of support roles to the Army and Navy originally, and that included, that wasn't just sort of on aerodromes, that was obviously across the entire military at the time. Um, as the war progressed, and particularly sort of in 1916, so just before they introduced conscription for men, they, um, there was just such a crucial man shortage and they needed to release more men from the front, which is when they started really looking at female substitution for men in terms of labour in a really um, sort of in a really serious way in the military setting. Um, so that's when they started thinking about forming, originally it was, I think the army was the first to sort of really pursue this and they formed the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps in 1917. I think it was January 1917, if I remember correctly. And again, so they took over, rather than having all these different mini sort of voluntary groups helping out sending people, it kind of streamlined a lot of the administration as well. So they just had one corps that would be providing women to the army in whatever capacity they were needed. Later on, the Wrens followed the Women's Royal Naval Air Service, um, that was November 17, I believe, um, to do much the same thing. So then they started, um, as the war progressed, obviously the need grew greater and there were um, a lot more trades that were opened up to them. And this is the same for the Women's Royal Air Force as well, which formed when the RAF was formed um, in 1918. And so the main categories were clerical, technical, and uh, domestic. I think this is the same across all the services. So you had um, clerical workers working in offices, also in stores, sort of ledger books, things like that. Um, domestics could be cooks, they could be cleaners, or um, they were called mess orderlies, but basically waitresses. Um, and the technical trades were um, motor transport and um, all the mechanical trades. So the, those that were salvaging parts from uh, crashed aircraft that returned, those acetylene welders who were sort of repairing um, instruments and things like that. Um, there were fabric workers who sort of stretched 
the campus because obviously the aircraft at the time, if not, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but this time the aircraft were basically a frame and canvas with an engine. They weren't sort of metal frames or anything. So basically these women would stretch the fabric. It was a canvas that was applied. It was a linen canvas that was painted with this stuff called dope, which made it really hard and thick and sort of strong. And they would be stretching that over the frame of the aircraft as well. Um, so towards the end of the war, I, there, there aren't, isn't really any evidence for when these trades gradually opened up. We just have a list of the trades as they were sort of towards the end. But I know that it would have evolved as the need progressed, as the man shortage got worse. Um, and there was a huge range of trades, as I'm sort of trying to give a bit of a summary of, that were available at the time. And then, obviously, the RAF is formed in April 1918. Um, and is that when the women's RAF comes into um, being at exactly the same time? Yeah, simultaneously, they were announced on the same day. And they were, it was the only women's force to have been founded on the same day as its parent force. Obviously, um, it's a little bit of an artificial situation that the Army and Navy predate the First World War by centuries, you know, they've been mm. around for a lot longer. But yeah, they were announced on, on the same day, on the 1st of April 1918, um, and plans, they were being planned more or less simultaneously. Um, so yeah, it, it was unique in that respect. It's not all smooth sailing though, is it? I mean, there's a big scandal, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, so um, there were a lot of teething problems, um, which is probably putting it mildly, but... Um, Basically, uh, there was a lot of problem getting uniforms and um, sorting out camps and accommodation for the women as well. And the, R the Women's Royal Air Force went through three commandants within its first six months. One of them, the first one, was Lady Gertrude Crawford. She wasn't even in post by the time the call was announced. Um, and there's two conflicting views on this um, that historians have written about. The one book I read, which I think was Catherine Bentley Beaumont, partners in blue. She said that the Air Ministry decided she wasn't up to the task, but there is another book um, called We Also, also Served, which was by Valerie Shipman, I think, and she says that Gertrude Crawford found her abilities restricted because the role of Commandant at the time was very much seen as a relatively ceremonial role, and they wanted every, all the organisation and the decisions to be taken by the men still. They didn't really have very much power. Um, what the truth of it is, I don't actually know because I didn't really find any reference to Lady Gertrude Crawford at all in any of the ones that I looked at. Um, but Douglas Pennant, Violet Douglas Pennant, um, who worked um, for the National Insurance Commission in Wales, was then recruited to take her place. And she did an awful lot of work to try and iron out problems to sort out uniform um supplies because they went for months without uniform and women were having to sort of use their own clothes and obviously getting dirty and traveling home in, in sort of awful conditions um and um sorting out unsanitary accommodation she put an awful awful lot of work in but there was a lot of office politics um that unfortunately led to her dismissal because um her three there were three women who were sort of just below her in the ranking who were meant to they were part of the team that administered the entire organisation. And two of them just didn't like her and they resigned. Um, 
and went back to the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. And there was um, a lot of sort of tension between the WAC and the WRAF because a lot of the staff had just been transferred over and women in the WAC were very happy. Um, and ultimately, um, there was a new Master General of Personnel in the RAF who um, took over and wasn't very supportive. So he was the person that the Commandant WRAF reported to in the Air Ministry. And ultimately, she was summarily dismissed. And then um, much later on, that actually led to an investigation by Parliamentary Select Committee. So this was after the war, because obviously during the war, people had more important things to organise. But um, yeah, it led to an um, investigation and all these sort of pieces of the realm and things that the entire government at the time were, were called in. And you can see it in the press. I mean, I've read nationals and also regionals from the time, and there's always sort of a little thing on the by the committee it was a big story at the time that's mad um so what was life like for women um, i'm really interested um, if you could tell people the difference between um being allocated to the mobile staff or the immobile staff because that makes the experience of being in the women's raf quite varied doesn't it yeah absolutely um and i think this is it's a distinction that's unique to the World War One women's services, I think. So I can't think of any service of military services in Britain and World War II that had this. But there were basically two branches, and this applied for all three of the women's corps. It was the mobiles and the immobiles. The mobiles were women who could be posted anywhere, either within Britain or when they went overseas, they were allowed to go overseas. Um, they generally either lived on camp or were billeted in the area and didn't necessarily work locally to where they were. Um, the immobiles, as the name kind of suggests, were women who basically took it as a sort of day job, if you like. They, um, they lived at home or they possibly had their own room somewhere. They might not necessarily have been with their parents, but they lived at home and they had their own uniform and things. And there would be a motor transport that would take these women in, sort of like a sort of school bus or a shuttle bus, but there would be like a tender lorry that would be taken to pick up these women at certain stops within the local area to bring them into the aerodrome to work. And then they'd work throughout the day, doing whatever trade it was that they were allocated to, and then they would get taken home again and go home. So they were basically sort of, they didn't have an entirely military life in that they didn't live on camp or anything like that. They, they sort of came in and they went again. How did they actually recruit these women to serve in military aviation? Um, so recruitment was done through labour exchanges and that's basically like a bit like the job centre. Um, so there would be women, um, someone there representing the WRAF and you could get a form and you'd um, fill in an application. Um, later on, I think they did recruitment fairs as well, um, because there's an account by Alice Chauncey, who was an officer in the WRF time, she talks about having represented the WRF at women's fairs. But certainly initially it was through the labour exchanges, and they had to do um, an interview initially, so they had a selection board, and also a medical board, um, which was quite stringent, apparently. Um, there's some, there's a sort of online article by the RAF Museum that says the medical was so stringent that it restricted women from the poorest backgrounds. I don't know if that was the case or not because I haven't found any evidence that actually says specifically what 
the um, medical entails. And because we don't have all of the service records, and those that we do have are pretty sparse, it's quite difficult to assess what social classes all the women came from. Mm. But certainly it was known at the time to be quite difficult to pass. And once, so if you pass the selection board and passed your medical, then you were able to be enrolled and you'd be given at some point like a letter to say you need to report to such and such base at some point. Um, so after April 1918, there's this professional framework. There is an official women's RAF. Um, does that mean that the roles that women um are performing in the air services evolves as well or are they still doing the same things that they were doing earlier on in the war um i guess i mean it basically came down to um need really at the time so basically after the war immediately afterwards they were releasing men for demobilization so they were carrying on very much the same kind of work as they would have done um i'm not sure they would necessarily have had much work in the way of um arming aircraft and things because that wasn't necessarily sort of the priority given that conflict had ceased but they would have been very much doing the same kinds of roles um including the technical and the clerical and so on um basically anything that men not obviously anything not frontline combat but anything where they thought women could be substituted including in the technical roles they were still carrying on right through until they were disbanded um and that includes overseas service as well we have store depots overseas as well as in the uk so it's um yeah really varied and it you know carried right on right up through to demobilization I mean, you've just mentioned a few places that they did serve, but it was really nationwide, wasn't it, including Southern Ireland? Yeah, so obviously at the time, um, what we now call the Republic of Ireland is, was part of Britain at the time. It had been since the Normans. Um, and what's particularly interesting about the women serving in Ireland is that um, if anyone isn't that familiar with Irish history, it's a very, very volatile time the country because just two years ago 1916 um they had the easter rising which was really seen as the spark for the independence movement um for in the, this period and throughout 1918 through to 1921 there was um violence on the streets it's called the war of independence in ireland but basically it was guerrilla warfare there was violence sort of attacks on crown forces so that could be the army or the Air Force or um, any anyone in a, in a Crown uniform, basically, who was seen as a threat by the activists um, in what was called the Irish Republican Army, but isn't the same thing as obviously what we know from the Troubles in Northern Ireland. It was a different organisation. Um, and these women were vulnerable um, to attack because they were they were either mobiles who'd been posted from the um, from Britain itself, so from England, Wales, or Scotland. Or they were local women, so Irish women who were serving on RAF aerodromes, working in a Crown uniform. Um, and in 19, it was July 1919, which was when the peace treaties were officially were actually signed and ratified. So the war definitely ended by that point. There were riots in Dublin, um, which were called the Peace Night Riots, and there's records of two different there's two different attacks on 
women's Royal Air Force members. So there's one that was on a, a tender vehicle going to Gormanstown Aerodrome. There's another woman who um, ended up being knocked unconscious and found herself in hospital. Um, and we know about this because there's um, press records about it and because we know that they applied for injury compensation as well. Um, and for someone who's, I've got family in Ireland, so I found that really, really interesting when I was researching it. But they also served in northern France after the armistice, and they also went to Germany. Um, and that's quite unique, the fact that they went to Germany, because they were in um, Cologne area, mainly. The main camp was in Cologne and the sort of surrounding areas. But the Women's Royal Air Force was the only women's organisation to send their other ranks across what was essentially enemy territory at the time. It was occupied between the armistice and the treaty, but the war could have broken out again at any moment. And there were sort of several hundred, if not over a thousand women there, stationed there with the Army of Occupation, um, which was really something that was quite unique at the time. Uh, what what was their role in the Army of Occupation um, and when they went across into former enemy territory? So very much what they did in the UK. They were... Um, they had cooks and um, motor transport drivers. There were a lot of clerical staff that went over because a lot of it was sort of people were needed to sort of do the administration for the occupation of that part of Germany. Um, there were also stores, depots and things as well that needed um, store clerks and things like that. So I think a lot of it was clerical, but there were also sort of domestic staff and motor transport as well. Um, so it's very much, they were there to perform the same role. They were there doing much the same as what they'd done in, in Britain to release men that would otherwise be trapped in military service to go back home and, and resume their normal lives. Were there any fame, any, was there anybody famous that served in, in the Women's Royal Air Force in World War One? She's only really someone that you know if you, if you know about the ATS and stuff, but Dame Helen Gwynne is possibly one of the most well-known people that I can think of. She was the last and final commandant of the WRAF. She'd been chief controller of the Women's Army Corps before that. And if there is anyone listening who's sort of a scholar of the women's services in World War II, she was instrumental in sort of forming emergency groups of women, sort of mobilising women, if you like, for potential military service um, during the sort of escalation of tensions in the 1930s and she was the first um, commander of the auxiliary territorial service as well. As I said, the records are, are kind of sparse for actually so who served. We don't have any officers' records, for example. And people who might have been famous at the time might not necessarily be known to that many people today, mm. if, if you know that. <laughs> What became of the women's RAF at the end of the war? Um, so at the end of the war, on the armistice itself, it had a strength of 25,000. Um, that included 556 officers. So it was quite a considerable size at the time. Um, it was at the end of the war, once the armistice was signed, that they started going overseas, so to help to mobilise the men. Throughout 1919, there was increasing um, public pressure. So in, in December 1918, there, there was a general election. 
that meant a whole new change in government, completely different people coming in, um, and they had different priorities. And obviously, the nation spent a considerable amount of money fighting the war. So there was a huge um, push for austerity and, and sort of economy. So at the time, whilst the air ministry was looking to make a permanent, a smaller but permanent peacetime force out of the women's Royal Air Force, the press and the public were saying, well, look at all this extravagance. The women were costing several thousand pounds and they're just swanning about in their uniforms. Um, do we really need an air service now the war's over? So the RAF itself was at risk. Um, and ultimately, particularly because they thought, well, the war's back to normal, women can sort of go back to what they used to do before the war. They didn't really see that women in a military role had a role in society anymore, that it was just a sort of wanton extravagance when the nation was, obviously everyone else was struggling and saving, having to cut back to help fund what had been sort of a four-year-long conflict. So ultimately, the, uh, the Women's Royal Air Force was sacrificed. So um, the Secretary there at the time was a certain Winston Spencer Churchill, which I'm sure most people will recognise. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he basically ensured that the RAS survived and became, you know, carry on being a permanent force or be a much reduced permanent force. And ultimately, the women had to be sacrificed to make that happen. So it was this... They were demobilised throughout 1919 um, and ultimately it was the 1st of April 1920, so two years after they were formed, that it was formally disbanded that there were no more women left to be demobilised. And that was it for another 20 odd years until World War II. Thank you so much for coming on to give us some insight into the first women that participated in war um, from an aviation sense. Um, I've definitely learn stuff I didn't know yeah no it's a really amazing story and it um I found out about it out of sheer fluke I was reading 1942 recruitment about the WAF and there was this one little paragraph and I thought my god I've got to find a book on that and then I couldn't find anyone that had really written about it which sort of prompted me to do my own research and it's definitely a story I think that deserves more awareness if you like I think people deserve to know more about these women and also the ones in the WAC and the Rens as well because they did an awful lot um all the war effort in World War One and they kind of get overshadowed which is a real shame absolutely um but thanks very much for coming on to try and rectify that with us no, thanks for having me We're going to move on now and talk to Sally McGlone, who is an aviation historian as well, but she specialises in the later period, so after World War I. Hi, Sally. Hi, Alex. Hiya. How is lockdown? Lockdown has been quite interesting, actually, for us. Have you seen now the (laughs) two-metre rule goes, like, next week? I know. (laughs) Well, it means my parents can go shopping again, which they've been absolutely itching to do for the last three months. They were actually on a cruise when it all kicked off Um, and they didn't think they were going to be let off the ship and they got to Southampton and obviously they're 75 and 80 and I couldn't get hold of them for love nor money so I ordered them a load of food and they've been kind of ensconced in the house ever since then so they're itching to get out but trying to keep well elderly parents are an absolute nightmare it's like controlling cats (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, do you know, I've heard of some other people as well just trying to keep them at bay. And they're like, well, I can go shopping. I'm not crippled. And it's yeah, like, exactly. Oh, that's not the point. Yeah. I think it's because obviously it. they <laughs> so many rules and regulations when they were kids and rationing and things like that. And they just think, why should, why should I? Why should I do what the, what the government says? I, I'm, I'm. It's like an element. I've survived the Nazis. I can survive this invisible thing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was all of that. And then my dog decided he was going to slip two discs in his back and we couldn't get him, get him in with the vets because obviously they didn't want to see the, the animals because you'd be bringing them in and there's possibility of, of infection spreading when you, when you hand your dogs over and stuff. And it took 10 days to get him diagnosed and then he had surgery and he's he's still recovering at the moment so i was thinking he was going to make an imp- uh, uh, an appearance had you been recording me video yep. link but he's he's not so. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay so we've talked about women in the first world hmm. war in the raf um they had paved the way for future generations but talk to us about women and flying in the 20s and 30s there's an uptake isn't there yeah, there is. I mean, hopefully Luciana um, covered the fact that at the end of the First World War, um, when all the uh, troops returned and all the all the male troops started going back into into their their old jobs, the um, the women who were in the in the forces were diminished and and they were no longer required. And in 1920, the WRAF Women's Royal Air Force was actually um, disbanded. Um, there was one element that remained, and that was the Princess Mary's RAF nursing service. But they're almost an entity on their own. Um, and I could talk about them separately for about <laughs> half an hour because their history is absolutely fascinating just on its own. But yeah, so at the end of the First World War, obviously all these women had they'd been involved. They'd either been driving ambulances or working in munitions factories. And, and the, the change in the perception of the women themselves and what they were able, what they were capable to, of, of doing um, and how they could, how they could work uh, gone with the old ideals of, you know, you had to be a housemaid or, or, or a servant. You could do technical work, engineering, working with aircraft, etc., etc. So in the early 1920s, um, there had obviously been lots of developments with the aircraft during the first world war there were a few pioneering aviators who were able to put lots of money into developing new types of aircraft. One of them was um, Cobham, Sir Alan Cobham. Um, and people like that were actually pumping money into aircraft development, but they were also getting people interested in aviation. He had a, a setup whereby he took aircraft all around the country and people were able to have air experience flights, and it was called Flying Circus. So Sir Alan Cobham's Flying Circus, and they would go to air shows at Hendon, and there was a huge, I want to say revival, but it wasn't a revival. It was more of a getting everybody involved and everybody interested, and obviously people who had a little bit more money, um, they'd gone from from horse racing to to motor cars and then it was on to on to flying and flying became very much the sport of the rich and up and coming um people uh, in the united kingdom 
more broadly so, speaking there women can't afford to fly there are nonetheless some really inspirational figures about to grab women's imagination isn't there yeah there, there were um one of them was was amy johnson um she, she wasn't actually from a, a wealthy background at all she was she was born in hull um she went to the local girls school it was a girls grammar school in hull um and she was very interested in engineering. She actually went on to university and did an accountancy degree, but was fascinated in flying. Uh, so she, she paid for herself to have flying lessons. But this was after she'd visited one of the Alan Cobham's flying circuses. So she'd had an, an air experience flight somewhere at one of these, these, these air shows, and she was hooked. Two of the pilots that were actually flying for Alan Cobham were Pauline Gower and another lady called Dorothy Spicer. Uh, they both started off as engineers and then they trained as, as pilots. So Amy obviously had, going back to Amy Johnson, she had her first air experience flight, decided that she was going to learn to fly. So she effectively paid for herself to have flying lessons. And once she'd, <clears throat> once she'd qualified as a pilot and she'd done her first solo, she actually asked her father to to help her buy her very own aircraft and it was an aircraft called Jason and she started to break so many records flying to Australia flying um flying uh, all over the all over the world and uh, across the channel breaking lots of records and became exceptionally famous now it was women like Amy who inspired a lot of other younger ladies to learn to fly. Um, yes, it was still very much the um, pastime of the rich and the powerful. But at the end of the, of the 1920s, early 1930s, the government set up an initi initiative whereby you paid £25 and you could have flying lessons and it was to earn your Class A flying license, pilot's license. So they had a huge uptake of young up-and-coming females who wanted to learn to fly. And it was also a way that the government could, could bolster and ensure they had a, a, a supply of pilots in reserve. Um, yeah, so they, tell us about the mid-1930s and the National Civil Air Guard. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, the civil, well, the Civil Air Guard, as I, 
just said briefly, um, the Civil Air Guard was set up to provide the United Kingdom with a with a pot of pilots who were already trained. Um, this allowed the government, when the Second World War began, to pick pilots to go into the RAF or into the army flying or into the fleet air arm. But it also meant there was a pool of pilots who were available to ferry aircraft to and from the factories. And, and this, all, this all feeds into the air transport auxiliary and the, the development of, of that organisation in ferrying aircraft to the frontline squadrons from the factories. But if I go all the way back to the Civil Air Guard, the initiative was set up with a, an incentive to learn to fly. You paid your £25 and, and you'd be able to get a flying licence. And, and as I said previously, lots of women took them up on that offer. So you had a, you had a clutch of female pilots who were trained, who were fully trained. Uh, not only had they been doing it as a, a pastime, as a hobby, but they, they were doing it because they loved engineering, because they loved flying. Um, when the air transport auxiliary was initially organised, it was all male pilots. And one of the ladies who had flown with Alan Cobham, who I mentioned before, a huge friend of, of Amy Johnson, was a lady called Pauline Gower, whose father was a, an MP. And she was able to lobby him and, and lobby government saying, you know, you've got all these male pilots, why can't we have female flyers as well? Some of us have got just as many air flying hours as the male pilots. And she lobbied and she lobbied. And eventually it, it, was, it was agreed that, yes, these women could join the yeah. air transport auxiliary. Uh, only eight at the very start, and they were only allowed to fly tiger moths and training aircraft uh, they certainly weren't um, weren't able to go on to the the faster aircraft at the beginning but it was a huge breakthrough because eight women albeit most of the first eight were from wealthy backgrounds or they had previous flying experience but they were able to be trailblazers for the the following female pilots who who flew throughout the second world war and um Talk to us about the initial onset of World War Two, and, and how different was the experience for women serving in the RAF than it was at the end of World War One? Has there been a big step backwards in terms of their role that they have to build up again, or is it just straight back in where they left off? I think, I think that's a really good point. Um, at, at the end of the the First World War, the the WRAF personnel had gone from being clerks, uh, typists, so I want to say clerical and pastoral kind of roles that they were engaged in, uh, up to being uh, women who worked in the, in the doping section. So it was paint, painting the, um, the, the dope onto the aircraft and engineering. And so they progressed significantly from, the, from their um, inception during the First World War to, to 1920 when they were disbanded. Um, at the beginning of the Second World War, the, the, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, I'm going to call them WAF, it's a lot easier, <laughs> the, the WAF were a section within the army. 
the Auxiliary Territorial Service, ATS, is the uh, auxiliary service for females in the British Army. Um, they had a section that was solely engaged in working with the RAF. So this is 1938. And ultimately, by 1939, it was decided by the government and the air ministry that actually these women would be best placed as being permanently seconded to the Royal Air Force. So that's when the Women's Auxiliary Air Force was initiated. It was 1939. But they then became attached to the Royal Air Force, not part of its very odd system. They had their own rank structure. Yes, they wore the same uniform. They had been wearing an ATS uniform. Um, they went on to wearing the, the blue RAF uniform. And they were, they were working with, but kept, kept separate from. Uh, they were engaged initially in clerical type of work, cooks, uh, typists, secretaries, mess hands, all that kind of employment. But as the, as the war progressed, they were used for more and more. So ultimately, you had the the women who were engaged with the balloon, the barrage balloon operations. So a lot of those um, sections were entirely, I want to say, manned by, womaned by <laughs> female female personnel. So you'd have uh, the the women operating the tractor that that pulled the pulleys, that hoisted the chains, that that launched the balloons. So they would they would man those sections. They were used as spotters. Um, so they were doing aerial reconnaissance from the ground. Um, they were engaged in intelligence work, radio operators, signalers, and then ultimately special operations executive agents. Some of them did come from the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. And I, the most famous one is Noor Inyat Khan. Mm-hmm. who joined the WAF as a, a radio operator, a wireless operator. Um, it's a really long and complex history, and, and trying to do it in an hour is not doing it enough justice at all. Yeah. But, but they're, they're, you could talk about their history just on their own. It's, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. But, yeah, I think there were more opportunities for women at the outset of the Second World War and things were progressing and developing so quickly because obviously technological developments meant that they were engaged in so many different things in comparison to. But, again, they were trailblazers. Um, They paved the way for all the women that came post-Second World War um, and the roles that were open to women I know you're going to ask me some questions about that. You said there was eight at the outset. What did that go up to during the war? I'm just interested to know like, what the yeah. peak was. 167, 168 mm. female <clears throat> pilots. Um, amongst that, that clutch, I say 167, 168, because even the Maidenhead Heritage Centre aren't 100% sure about the, the exact figure. Um, some of the uh, the ladies that were on the nominal role were air cadets who were asked to leave or left of their own accord. Um, you also had in that I want, group of women five female air engineers. 
So they were, um, they, they, rather than the pilot's wings, they used to wear a single brevet. Uh, we call it brevet. It's rather like a, uh, a navigator or a, a weapon systems operator, uh, brevet in the Royal Air Force. So a single wing. Um, and they used to wear one of those and it was their job to actually go up in the aircraft and, and do all the engineering bits and pieces. Um, they would often fly with the pilots, some of the heavy bombers. Um, you couldn't operate the, the landing gear, just one person. You needed a, a, a second person in the cockpit to, to operate all the landing gear. So there were women who were engaged on the engineering side. They would obviously be in the, in the hangars, on the airfields when people, people landed. It, it was, we call it in the Air Force, it's a senior engineering officer role, Sengo. And that was the kind of role they were assuming. So they were fully integrated. And actually, very soon after they were initiated in, into the ATA, they were accepted and they were accepted as equals. There were a few articles in, in the newspapers when the women were first introduced into their transport auxiliary. I think somebody wrote into the Times and said, you know, these women aren't aren't even intelligent enough to be cleaning the floor, let oh, alone nice. flying, yeah, flying an <laughs> aircraft. Um, and the, he sounds like sorts, a real prick. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. So many, so many sexist views and comments, misogynistic, but they were of the time. Yeah. Um, but these women very quickly proved that they far exceeded anybody's expectations i think their safety record was actually it was it was better than the male pilots if you break it down to to ratios and if you took a a mean number of each the the number of fatalities or air accidents for the males was still higher um than for the females so they very quickly established themselves as being incredibly important to the organization and obviously for morale in mm. the, in the nation they they were a they they were an anomaly they were very attractive young mainly although one of the oldest female pilots in the 88 was 47 so there'd still be hope for somebody like me but they, <laughs> they had they had they had one lady who was a grandmother and the, the, even them if you look at all the the different personalities that were drawn uh, to, to to make up the female cohort of the air transport auxiliary there are some absolutely fascinating stories but they were respected they were seen as glamour girls they were noticed everywhere mm -hmm. they had an incredibly dark dark blue midnight blue uniform with the gold wings and uh, one of them commented that you know, some of our boyfriends would say, oh, please wear your uniform. And some of them would say, oh, don't whatever you do, wear your uniform. It's so embarrassing. So if they went to London, they'd be seen, they'd be noticed. Many people thought they were Australian pilots, but obviously they weren't. There were lots of press releases about them, lots of propaganda films, fantastic film called Ferry Pilot that was um, made by the Ministry of Information and it, it's it's brilliant because there's one particular scene which sums up the frustrations of the females at the beginning of the war when they weren't able to fly the faster aircraft. They were limited to flying aircraft that didn't go over 
250 miles an hour. This is when they were flying the tide moths. And uh, one of the pilots, female pilots, walks into the ops room uh, to talk to the the duty authoriser about the, the aircraft that she's going to collect. And he makes a comment about, oh, you can pick up a hurricane or a spitfire. And it's a lady called Joan Hughes, who later got an MBE, but she turns to the camera and she says, oh, no, I won't be doing that. We're, we're, we're limited to 250 miles an hour. So <laughs> they were frustrated because these women were fully qualified pilots who had been flying some of them for six, seven years. Some of them had 2,000 hours on different types of aircraft. And they were being told that they could only fly the, the really slow biplanes and the training aircraft. So it's a really interesting story. There's so many facets within, mm. within just the females in the Air Transport Auxiliary. I could go on and on about Joan Hughes and flying heavy bombers and her medical when she was too short and she put newspaper in her shoes so that she would pass the, the medical because she was five foot two and the cutoff was five foot four. But there's so many different stories. But ultimately, they were inspirational. They smashed through so many windows in terms of perceptions that people had of these women and what women were capable of doing. And they were exceptionally brave. They were flying without radios, without navigation equipment. It was all done on dead reckoning. And had I been on video, I was going to lift up my ferry pilot's notes. They had a little blue book that they would hold on their knee. And on each page was a different type of aircraft. And it basically gave you the, if you're looking at the ferry pilot's notes, it gives you the stalling speed. And that's the most important thing, obviously, um, stalling speed coming into land. But that is all they had. And towards the end of the uh, end of the war, they would fly four, five, six different types of aircraft in one day. So you could be in a Spitfire in the morning, and then you could be in a Lancaster, and then you're in a in a Mosquito. So the diversity and the the excitement of the job it it, it really gave them such a buzz. Some of the ladies, when they were interviewed after the Second World War. They really did say, you know, I, I didn't know what to do with myself at the end of the war because mm. this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It would never happen again. But what they didn't realise is that, yeah, they, they, they were paving the way. Why are they specifically interested in young women with language ability? What were they doing for the WAF? It was really useful for the women to have languages because they could be employed with... Um, with the special operations executive, uh, when they had their initial interviews to, to join the WAF, they would all be asked, do you have any language qualifications? And obviously those that said that they did have uh, would would be interviewed by the, the, the special operations executive, the intelligence services. Um, one of the ladies that did end up as an SOE operative was a lady called Yvonne Baisden. Um Interesting misconception that, that many people have is that the, all of the women that joined the SOE 
were uh, first aid nursing yeomanry, so fannies. They would that, that that's the the belief held by many people, but it's not actually correct. The ladies who were in the WAF who were recruited into the SOE stayed as WAF. They were just given a commission before they parachuted into France. So they would go from being an SAC, which is a, a senior aircraft woman, uh, to being a, a section officer, which is the equivalent of flying officer uh, in, in the Royal Air Force. So it's really interesting. I mean, there's, there's, that's another side of the WAF that you could spend an hour talking yeah. about the female <laughs> SOE agents and what, what their training entailed and, and how were they recruited and, and what were their experiences and, and really interesting. But again, they were proving themselves to the world of what they were capable of doing. Mm. Who um, are the flying nightingales? One of my favourite parts of <laughs> RAF history, Princess Mary's Royal Air Force nursing service. Mm-hmm. They were established during the First World War. Oh, this is um, the one you mentioned that was the only yeah, one that was right at the made beginning. in existence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, they, they remained. Um, but women were still being recruited to be nurses in the Royal Air Force, even in the interwar period. But they stayed within the, I want to say the, how do we say it? I can't say it. Princess Mary's Royal RAF nursing service. Um, And they remained, it was almost like a separate entity. Um, But in the Second World War, these nurses obviously found themselves looking after pilots who'd been severely burnt, uh, injuries that, that you, you don't see in peacetime, um, that are you only see them through conflict, through explosive um, action. And the flying nightingales were the nurses who went out on the Dakotas and other types of aircraft over to France and air evacuated troops back to the UK. So we call it now, it's, it's casual, casualty evacuation, Kazivat. So they were nurses, airborne nurses. They would set up the aircraft with stretchers, with all the instruments, uh, drips, bandages, everything that they needed, they would fly over to France and the wounded soldiers, sailors, airmen, would be loaded on on the aircraft and they would fly back to the UK with them. So it was one of the first instances where it was used en masse. There were some First World War aeromedical evacuation Mm -hmm. examples, but not many and certainly not using the female nurses so yeah, they they got the the flying nightingales from their role during the Second World War, but particularly they were flown over. I think three days after after D Day was the first day that that these ladies landed in France and then brought evacuated soldiers back to the UK. So that's a history in itself. Uh, I think we definitely have to do a podcast on them, don't we? Yeah, they've remained 
they, I mean, they've remained in service and they still are today doing exactly the same thing. Um, I came back on a huge great big C-17 from Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, if it was the end of my tour, but there were four or five, there were four or five uh, British soldiers on board who were injured and all the nurses were on there. So half the aircraft had been set up with with the beds and all the drips and the nurses were toing and froing all the way back with blood pressure monitors and, you know, saline into them. And it was, it was fascinating, but it's such a level of care. It's mm. like being in ICU on an aircraft. The, the job they do is amazing. And the number of people that they are able to, safe who've come directly off the battlefield as long as these guys are, are picked off picked up in time and treated in time they, they, what they do is amazing mm. hats off to them but i know that the uh the senior nurse she'd love to speak to you actually absolutely well, she'd definitely. love to speak to you about about the history of them 100 <laughs> percent. but women play a part in the berlin airlift don't they yeah they do there were lots and lots of at this stage, they were still WAF, that, but they were just about to become WRAF again. Mm-hmm. Um, the the, the female, it, females in the Air Force, it swaps and changes. It's First World War, WRAF. Second World War, WAF. Post-Second World War, WRAF. Anyway, going back to the Berlin <laughs> airlift. <laughs> the, yes, they were. Um, they were in Germany. A lot of them were air traffic controllers. So a lot of them would be helping with the, it was 24-7 for a year, 24-7 operations. There were flights taking off and landing every five to six minutes throughout the entire duration of the Berlin airlift. Um, There were also women that were working as uh, radio operators, police Movements officers, now movements officers, I mean logistics. So loading up aircraft, checking that it's the right weight, checking that everything's tied down properly, checking that all the right bits and pieces have been loaded onto the correct aircraft. So there were women who were engaged in that role as well. So really interesting. All the time, the branches are opening up and they're having more and more opportunities. But the one thing they still couldn't do at that stage is fly in the RAF and have a set of pilot's wings, RAF wings. Uh, That was still something that was out out of reach. But I know you're going to ask me how it all changed. It seems hardly fair, (laughs) is it? Um, Yeah. The government make a landmark announcement in 1946, don't they? Yes, it's, it's to make the auxiliary services that had been auxiliary female services so the royal navy it was the women's royal navy service the auxiliary territorial service for the army and the women's auxiliary air force raf is to make them all permanent features so they all become permanent parts of their respective forces so the wrens became a permanent part of the royal navy uh, the ATS, a permanent part of the army, and the 
WAF, a permanent part of the RAF, but they still changed their name in 1949 from Women's Auxiliary Air Force to Women's Royal Air Force. So they're getting closer to being fully integrated, but not quite. They're still slightly separate. They don't have their own chain of command. And at this stage, they start to adopt the, the rank system, the RAF rank system. Um, but they're building bridges to become, I can't think of the word. What's the word? Fully integrated, become, maybe. Yeah, yes. fully integrated into the RAF. So, yeah, it, it just takes time and it evolves. As, so, as, yeah, as I was going to ask you, how do women's roles change in the 50s and 60s then? In the 50s and 60s, a lot of women find, find themselves deployed overseas obviously we were we were over in Aden uh, we were in in Palestine this is pre 50s 60s but a lot of the ladies went over to Cyprus a lot of them were in Germany a lot of them were de deployed to Aden so they were working alongside men uh, they were doing the same jobs as men but they lived separately from so all their accommodation would be separate. They would they would be messing, so messing, sorry, eating and 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 relaxing, socialising in in different places. They would all be looked after. I want to say mothered by it was the the WRAF. There would be a, an OC officer commanding WRAF on each station, and it would be her. She's normally a, a flight lieutenant rank. And she would be responsible for, for their welfare and, you know, flower arranging and making sure they knew. <laughs> exactly. I know. Yeah. I know. Making sure that they wore the appropriate clothes to a dance and all of this kind of antiquated activities. We look at it now and we laugh. But this was still happening right up until 1994. Oh, so what? there's another landmark moment in the 70s, isn't there? Yeah, in the 70s, uh, they started to allow female officer cadets to train with their male counterparts. Oh, we're getting there slowly, aren't we? <laughs> slowly, slowly. Yeah, slowly breaking down these barriers. Mm, so um, who was Julie Gibson? Julie Gibson was the first RAF pilot female Hurrah, pilot. we got pilot. there yeah. <laughs> however going oh, all no. the way back if i go all the way back um yes they weren't integrated in the raf they were they were separate from and they were volunteer reservists but there were female women's raf volunteer reserve service pilots <laughs> and one of them was a lady called Jean Lennox Bird mm -hmm. who had been an air transport auxiliary pilot and another one was Jackie Mogridge who had been an air transport auxiliary pilot um it, it's ridiculous uh, the, the, the the whole not being able to wear wings etc etc but yeah, you're right. Julie Julie Gibson was the She's the one first. that gets the credit of being yeah. the first official winged pilot for the RAF. Yes. Yeah, now she wasn't With fast boobs. yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she wasn't she wasn't fast yet. So I think she's Hercules. But at the same that time That multi engine. Yes. Yeah, okay. big it 
Because that's the distinction, the isn't there? There's jets, yeah. multi-engine, and helicopters. Yes, yes. Yeah. So we we go. Yeah, you go. Um, fast jet, uh, rotary is is the helicopters, and heavy multi multi heavy lift is is the other. The we have surveillance aircraft. Now I keep saying we have. I'm I'm not in anymore, <laughs> but it's the easiest way of describing it. But yeah, at the same time Julie Gibson was going through her training, there was another breakthrough because a female navigator who was, she did initially did her training to go on to fast jets. So at that time it would have been tornadoes. Um, and she's called Anne-Marie Horton. Uh, she's now a group captain. She's still serving. Mm. Um, so there was a pilot and a navigator that went through. But it took a few more years again to have a female fast jet pilot that is complete it's gone sorry tornadoes obviously at the time um and then there's there's a few more exciting things that have happened since 1995 96 94 um, is when the field is completely leveled isn't it yeah 1994 is when the wraf stops being a separate service and it's incorporated into the royal air force and it all became becomes one service but there were still areas that women could not be employed they couldn't be in the in the in the raf regiment yes they could be a clerk on an raf regiment squadron um, and I think there's one instance of a, uh, which lady who's in her seventies now that, that I, I met and she, she deployed. So she went out into the field on exercise with the RAF regiment. So she had a bit of an anomaly. Um, it's certainly not recorded in all the history books, but yeah, they, they weren't able to, to join the RAF regiment. So they, they would only be employed in those roles that they'd been doing previously, but they were starting to train females to be navigators, to be pilots, to be fighter controllers, air traffic controllers, engineers, intelligence. I could go on and on and on, but it's really quite interesting because the integration of women into the Air Force followed along with the developments in technology. Mm. Um, What role did you take when you went in? Well, when I went in, <laughs> I joined up as an admin sec officer, which was... Please tell me you weren't arranging flowers. <laughs> no, I wasn't. No, I did, I did, I did uh, accounts, pay mm-hmm. and allowances, um, media ops, so uh, media communications, corporate communications. Um, that, was, that was another tour. Accounts was another tour, so going back to the pay and allowances, mm-hmm. discipline. I had a really kind of, I want to say, jack of all trades, master of none. It was really interesting. Um, I did two years out of branch where I was actually uh, working with the intelligence branch. Mm. And that, to me, was more interesting than my primary role. Um, so I kind of like questioned it at the time and thought, well, you know, should I have joined the intelligence branch Perhaps I should have done, but I'd been in the officer training corps at university. So I actually think I should have joined the army, but that's another story in itself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about women um, and to finish off the story that Luciana started. And so we now have a complete picture of women from the very first onset of their serving 
with the air services in World War One, all the way through sort of to the modern day to you, basically. Yeah, but now they can go into the RF regiment as well. There isn't a single part of the RAF. Boom. Women can't serve. And I think the first female SAC gunner, RAF regiment gunner, graduated just before the COVID lockdown. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) It is. Oh, good on her. I love that. Um, And we will definitely, definitely have to have you back to talk about, we'll do a show on the Flying Nightingales and you can bring your friend. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to one of our listeners, Colin Fisher, who has a massive passion for the Spanish Civil War and learning all about it. And he's going to tell you all about Madrid under fire. It's a brilliant talk. He was absolutely outstanding. So join us for that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus. And we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.